This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, May 13th, 2016. I'm Cato Institute President Peter Geller. Ten years ago this week, the Cato Institute launched its daily podcast. For most of that time, your host has been our own silken-voiced Caleb Brown. In commemoration of this milestone, today we turn the tables and question the questioner about the podcast, his favorite policy issues, and what makes him optimistic about the future. We spoke last week. When I used to listen to the podcast before I met Caleb, and for those of you who don't know him, you know, he sounds like he's about 6'2", and looks probably like a, I don't know, a Ken doll. But he's actually, how tall are you? 5'5". Five, five. Okay. And don't look like a Ken doll. Or do, do you? Opinions would differ. Anyway, give us some of the history behind the podcast. I understand you weren't involved at the inception, but who was, how did he get going? And then maybe we'll talk a little bit about how you got involved. Uh, the podcast, of course, started in 2006. It was started uh, at the urging of Anastasia Yolova, who was, uh, I believe, a Russian young woman who um, said podcasting is a thing, we should do podcasting, and then uh, got the title Cato Daily Podcast baked in, which if you're ever considering starting a podcast, you shouldn't build into the title of the podcast how often it comes out because uh, that can uh, put you can, on quite constrain a, you. It can constrain you. Some of those days that you want to sleep in and you can't. It can put you on quite a treadmill. So she did it for about a year, mm-hmm. and and uh, it does seem that that was pretty early in the podcast days, if memory serves. iPhone wasn't out yet. People were still using iPods. That's right. Yeah, iPhone came out about the time I came up here to start. Which was, I guess, then 2007. Yeah, July 2007. So tell us a little bit about how you arrived at, at Cato and what you we'll talk a little bit about what you did before, before then. Uh, Jamie Detmer, who is the uh, media director here at Cato in 2007, called me up because I was actually doing a podcast in my spare time uh, in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And uh, he listened to it and they needed somebody pretty much right away because Stasi, as she is called, uh, had already left, and uh, they needed somebody right away. So he called me up. Just that I, title, Daily Podcast, couldn't yeah, miss a day. That's right. You can't miss a day. So uh, he called me. He listened to the podcast, and uh, I came up and interviewed, chatted with him. I, I knew David Bose previously because he and I are from two small towns in western Kentucky that are about 15 minutes apart. Oh, how about that? And uh, we actually began communicating in 1996. And I think uh, David's family is there for many generations, that, right? That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, his father was a judge. And um, so I knew David for a while, and then Jamie called me, and David said, oh, I know a guy. He's been a reporter and works in public policy and understands libertarianism. Why don't you give him a call? And uh, was hired right away. Mm-hmm. What's interesting to me is that I think a lot of people would think that being a libertarian and having a deep knowledge of libertarian philosophy would be helpful to the job that you do, uh, running running the podcast, composing the podcast, conducting the interviews. Um, maybe composing isn't the right word because it's pretty pretty free free flowing, um, but probably wouldn't see it as a, a necessary um, necessary prerequisite. But last year when I joined Cato and we sat down here and you grilled me for the first time, I was really struck by the, you know, the fact that you are a, a libertarian and have a deep knowledge of libertarian philosophy and broad knowledge of policy in, in, in various areas. Um, 
could you tell me a little bit about, um, maybe it will be interesting to know how, how important you feel that is for your job. It's probably a bit of a rhetorical question. Well, it is important. Uh, I think it's uh, important, especially if you're dealing internally here, because like here at Cato, I'm not a reporter. Uh, what I do is I feature ideas for the, for the most part. That is to say, to the extent that uh, an idea is something that I find agreeable, uh, I try to feature that as, uh, those kinds of ideas as much as I can. And if it's general policy discussion, I try to steer that discussion into a direction wh- of where libertarians would have questions themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully have been successful at asking the right questions to the audience that is broadly libertarian. Mm-hmm. How, do you, uh, how do you think about sourcing you know, ideas, topics, guests? You know, how does that process work, and how do you prepare for the, pro- for the podcast? Um, I am addicted to Twitter, mm-hmm. so I follow a lot of what uh, folks are talking about on Twitter. I read the Washington Post every day. Um, I try to read parts of the Wall Street Journal every day and the New York Times, parts of them. And um, generally, it's what I find interesting for the most part. And sometimes it's specific to some sort of policy piece that, that Cato is putting out mm-hmm. uh, or, or something that sure. Cato is trying to get into, uh, get out there. And But otherwise, it's mostly what I find interesting. And also... Um Sometimes guests are people who are visiting Cato, uh, either for meetings or to participate in conferences and things. And I guess one of the reasons I was asked or chosen to interview you is that I've been a consumer of the podcast from nearly the beginning. Uh, And before I joined Cato, my many years as a donor, I was uh, an active consumer of really all of Cato's um, material, what it produces, books policy analyses, the blog, and the podcast is an interesting cross-section. of you know, It just shows you uh, if people aren't reading a lot of the things that Cato is producing, um, you just tap into just the rich amount of, uh, of content, of uh, the discussions that are going on here, the many policy areas we, we cover, um, the, the experts who are on our staff but also who visit Cato because it's such an important element of the of the freedom movement. It really is uh, the podcast is a great great example of uh, of our of our work and and uh, I just found I was a religious you know listener before before I got here and uh, and continue to be. Talking about uh, so you, you talked a little bit about how you came to Cato and who brought you here, but what were you doing before that? And was it related to multimedia, podcasting, broadcasting? Uh, Well, so uh, I was on my high school speech team and did radio broadcasting as a competitive category there, as well as storytelling and a couple other things. So you were a letterman in... in, uh Broadcasting. Uh, I lettered in speech. All right. right, which is like the about the almost the nerdiest way to letter mm-hmm. in high school. Band maybe is more. Yeah, nerdy. that's a that's a, a letterman's jacket that probably gets could get you beat up. It so could. It, it could. It very well could. Sorry. Uh, so uh, I did that as competitive category. I was editor of my high school paper. Um, I went to college, at the University of Louisville. Uh, majored in economics and uh, 
really sort of came into it reading uh, works of Hayek and Friedman and uh, other writers and Albert J. Nock and, and people like Our that. Our enemy, the state. Yes. And um, continued doing radio in college, started working at WHAS Radio which and the Kentucky News Network, which are two of the bigger outlets for radio content in the Commonwealth, and was hired out. I worked for newspapers. I wrote cover stories for Leo, Louisville Eccentric Observer, which was owned by John Yarmouth, who's now the third district U.S. representative in Kentucky. All right, right. Who visited Cato, who, uh, I it, think, uh, well, about a week ago, yeah. but several weeks before the podcast. Chatted, airing. chatted with him. Um, worked briefly in television at WOKY Channel 32, which is a CBS affiliate in uh, Louisville, uh, was an editor at Snitch Newsweekly, which was a weekly newspaper that was just about criminal justice issues and crime in the area. So they did a lot of wall-to-wall coverage of trials in Louisville. And uh, so part of my job was to keep part of that running smoothly. Uh, mostly it was radio, though. That's what I did 40 hours a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, was hired out of that to work for the Bluegrass Institute, which is uh, Kentucky's free market group, and was hired specifically to do KentuckyVotes.org, which was a project that was sort of cloned from the Mackinac Center's MichiganVotes.org, which was essentially a detailed cross-reference database of all of the roll call votes taken by state lawmakers uh, in Kentucky. And before we started that project, it was actually really, really difficult to get access to the votes of uh, lawmakers in Kentucky. You had to know that the vote was even taking place. You uh, had to either fax or mail a request to the Legislative Research Commission, and then they would fax or mail you back a printed copy of the roll call vote. And so we started loading in all of the votes for the previous session, 2005, when I was hired in the middle of 2005. And then lawmakers started calling me saying, well, I wasn't We there. liked it when this stuff was hard to find. Basically, basically. Uh, we started publishing uh, that information. Lawmakers would call and say, well, I wasn't there because uh, whatever the reason might have been. And I'm not, I'm not very... Ad- I'm not a very diplomatic person. Uh, tactless, uh, prickly are the words used to describe me by my best friends. And uh, as uh, diplomatically as I could say, I said, well, it's none of my business why you weren't there. And you know, we took that project around the state. People seemed to like the idea that they could get easy access to lawmakers' votes. And I was happy that it was a free market group that was doing it, that I was affiliated with. But within just a few months, the State Legislative Research Commission uh, caved immediately and decided, well, we're going to start putting that on our website. Mm-hmm. So it was uh, a, a victory, victory yeah. uh, very early on, just a, maybe four months after mm-hmm. I started, we, we, the, legisla- the legislature said, put up their hands and said, right, right. we're just going to start publishing all this information ourselves. Well, given your, given your passion for classical liberalism and your history in media— and radio, when you were a reporter, what examples can you give us of uh, you know the things that uh, that make us mad, the things that we see government do that don't make any sense, that are either um, 
you know, infringing on our liberty or uh, government power overreaching? Um, I remember a couple of examples. One, when I was working at the radio station, Louisville was considering a citywide smoking ban. And at this time, I think Louisville was a city-county merge. Citywide, city, inside or outside? Uh, citywide uh, in restaurants and bars. Okay, okay. And uh, so not quite as authoritarian quite, as I uh, as I imagine, right. but pretty authoritarian. Right. So, uh, but the exemption that they got, or that they they cut the deal, and they said the argument, the broad argument was, this is for the people who work in these restaurants and bars who are breathing in this smoke all day during their shifts. Uh, the libertarian response, of course, is maybe you should work somewhere else, mm-hmm. uh, or let you know let the let the individual entities sort this out, let civil society solve that problem. Sure. But the exemption that they got was Churchill Downs, which of course is a, a popular venue for smokers. Absolutely. And so the, the, the weird compromise was, well, we care about all these employees who work in these, who otherwise would be working in smoke-filled environments, unless they work at this signature Location in Louisville, Kentucky, probably and very then, politi- well and then, pl- politically connected, et cetera. We don't necessarily care so much about them, mm-hmm. uh, but that that was that's something that I just thought sort of gave lie to the notion that uh, this was about uh, concern for right. employees of various. Yeah, of course. Um, in TV, the, the the best example I can think of that sort of revealed a couple of things. One was. Uh, so, mosquitoes spread West Nile virus. Mosquitoes breed in standing pools of water. And, I'm, with you, I'm with you so far. And uh, charcoal, these big charcoal tablets you can drop into these standing pools of water that make it inhospitable to for mosquitoes trying to breed. And uh, I attended a press conference. This is how this goes in TV. You're news director will essentially hand you a press release and say, go cover this event. That's the, the bulk of, of the news coverage, or they'll hand you a story in the paper, or let's follow up on this thing that happened a couple of weeks ago. In this case, it was just a press release, say, go cover the mayor talking about uh, West Nile virus and what he's doing to stop its spread. So at the press conference, which, again, I don't, I don't know exactly uh, how valuable this spending was, or even how much spending it was. But I went to the health department director and said, when was the last time somebody in Jefferson County, Kentucky, Louisville, got West Nile virus? And he said, uh, seven years ago. And I said, okay. A solution or, in search of a problem. Or Yeah. And I said, well, when was the last time somebody in Kentucky got West Nile virus? He said, five years ago. And so my story, which ended did air, uh, started with, you have to go back five years to find someone in Kentucky who contracted West Nile virus, and you have to go back seven years to find someone uh, in Jefferson County or vice versa. You have to go back several years to find somebody in Kentucky or Jefferson County who contracted West Nile virus. That was the opening of my story. Mm-hmm. And uh, my news director hated it um, and indicated strongly that he did not like that story. And all that really told me was that uh, perspective or providing some sort of perspective on news is not something that news directors are incentivized to care about that sure. much. Which, In I mean, fact, they really don't want perspective, right? Because they want things to be 
pretty sensational and scary. Obviously, one of the things that we do a lot of here is to try to accurately assess risk. And you've mentioned to me, like John Mueller's work and trying to, you know, really make the case what what is the real risk of terrorism, you know, domestically, uh, et cetera. Um, mass shootings, you know, obviously are very sensational events, but you know, the odds of being killed in a mass shooting are really small. Um, so I think that that's important. But the uh, so the news directors. Biases in favor of uh, making ratings sure. go up, and I don't, um, I don't begrudge him that. Right. I mean, that's that's the job. The uh, the other element of bias that we often talk about in the the media is, um, you know, kind of a progressive progressive bias. Um, did did you see that? And is it as uh, well? I'll let you answer. And well, I have a follow up. In Louisville, Kentucky, not so much. Mm-hmm, yeah. Uh, I'll say since I've come to Washington D.C., it seems that uh, the things that get people's hackles up uh, often aren't that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. The, uh, what's interesting to me when you talk about ratings, you know, I think that um, those of us who uh, maybe don't share the same perspective or whose views would be in the minority in the newsroom or on, uh, in the faculty lounge at a university, uh, we often think that there is this conspiracy that there it's intentional, you know, kind of leftward lean. And what you're suggesting is there are often other forces at play. The primary motivation for the news director is ratings, driving ratings, and that's probably going to be paramount um, relative to his political or ideological leanings. Yeah, and in fact, I think that more broadly, I think that is the case. I think that's the case in. Uh, federal agencies, uh, mm-hmm. state agencies. It's not necessarily that you uh, have some sort of deep-seated ideological way of viewing things, but you are, in some sense, a product of your environment and the things that you are, you th- think people think you ought to be caring about. Quite often, are the things you end up caring about. Right. And for for news directors, for for anybody really, even people who work at the Cato Institute. Sure. Um. Yeah, I recently had lunch with John Hasness, who's an adjunct scholar at the Cato, Uni- Cato Institute and a professor at Georgetown University. And what he told me is he thought that a lot of the ideological bias in the academy is just driven by the fact that people live in an e- the echo chamber. And a lot of us who are outside of the academy imagine that there's this conspiracy that, well, first we'll take over the academy and we'll take over young minds and then we're going to take over the world. I'm, I would cackle like a madman if I could. But uh, he said it's not that it's not really that way. He just feels that people are exposed to you know, a certain way of thinking the sim- same way uh, if a group of you know five of us at, at Cato who generally agree philosophically would look at... Uh, you know, an editorial that uh, took a different viewpoint. We might we might think the analysis is is shallow or not very substantive and not something to be taken seriously. And he thinks it's driven more by you know living in the echo chamber than any kind of conspiracy. Which those of us who are Hayekians, it's much uh, um, much more consistent. I think it's, with our it's an emergent it's an it's an emergent phenomenon, not some uh, some top down conspiracy. Right. My, one of my favorite writers, Robert Anton Wilson, uh, who wrote the Illuminatus Trilogy, among other things, basically argues that people like conspiracies uh, or people believe conspiracies, uh, sometimes against a lot of prevailing evidence, uh, 
Uh, and sometimes there actually are a lot of conspiracies, but they're not sustainable uh, over the long haul. Conspiracies typically aren't. Mm-hmm. And that it's the you know Occam's razor applies to most things, and that is simplest explanation is usually the best. Right. How about um, turning back to the podcast? Some of the guests. Who who are some of the memorable guests that you've had? Uh, we had Ralph Nader on uh, a while back. He was here for uh, oh, a, sure. a book event, and right. uh, we sort of engaged on campaign finance and uh, other issues. He's a really interesting guy, and mm-hmm. uh, is you know very uh, spry. Still a pretty uh, quick guy, and I enjoyed talking to him greatly. Mm-hmm. I really did. Yeah, I imagine that would be interesting. Um, anyone else? Um, let's see. Billy Murphy, who is a uh, pricey criminal defense attorney in Baltimore. I believe he represented the family of, of Freddie Gray, who died in police custody uh, just about a year ago. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it's—I was listening to radio today. I think it was the one, right around the one-year anniversary of the rioting. And— uh, the, the, one of the best answers I've ever gotten to a question was from him. I said, when do you think this relationship between police and the community really broke down? And his argument is that, and his response was, when cops stopped walking the beat, because that took away a lot of the local knowledge that cops had of, of the communities that they would otherwise be walking, it put a permanent barrier, that is to say, the car window between them mm-hmm. and, and the community. And it also robbed them of discretion in some ways, because without that local knowledge, it's hard to understand the people that you uh, live among, uh, work among. And he said, you, you know, it's harder to tell the good kids from the bad kids at that point and which kids just need a little nudge and uh, which others need to be right, dealt with more right. seriously. And I, I thought that was a really compelling argument and something that uh, probably gets short shrift. Yeah, pretty interesting because it certainly uh, um, substantially dilutes the integration that the police have with the, the neighborhood, you know, rather than walking around being part of the neighborhood and, as you say, being a peace officer. Um, you know, then you just see the car park with the lights on. You wonder what's going on. Right, it changes both sides of that relationship. Yeah. It it makes people more nervous about being around each other when right. you have that permanent separation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wonder when that happened, because my guess would be, you know, having myself growing up in the '70s, when you know violent crime was was uh, uh, crime rates were much higher than they are today. I wonder if it was driven by you know, safety factors for the police. It wasn't as in that kind of environment. Was it no longer safe to walk around in some neighborhoods, things like that? But uh, it's a great, great point. Were there any guests that you've hosted been particularly challenging to interview? Uh, I've recorded several podcasts that I didn't use. Ah. And I'd rather not go into detail about why <laughs> oh, I didn't please. use them. Uh, just because that... Uh, in some cases, it was, um, not to toot my own horn, but me eating their lunch, essentially, mm-hmm. in, in an interview and not finding what they were saying particularly compelling. And I don't like to okay. use that because I don't, I don't want to embarrass people. Mm-hmm. 
All right. How about uh, Cato staff? Are there Cato staff who are um, easy to interview or uh, uh, satisfying to if, interview? If those are two separate categories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I would say uh, Neil McCluskey, our main in-house education guy mm-hmm. here, is always concise. He always brings the point right back to uh, federal involvement in education. He's obviously written deeply on the issue, so he can right. speak to it very clearly. So anytime sure. we're talking about uh, higher ed or K-12, he is extremely concise. He always gets straight to the point, and he makes that point very quickly. I would say the same of uh, Dan Mitchell. Okay. It just mm-hmm. cuts right through it. Here's the point. Now I'm done. And right, right. my concern with recording with those guys is that podcasts are too short because they've made their point so well in such a short period of time. And I was like, Challenge I feel for the like interview. we should, I feel like we should talk some more, but right, you've made right. your point. The, pr- the proverbial high class problem. <laughs> right. But the uh, most satisfying, hands down, Peter Van Doren. Oh, interesting. Uh, the editor of Regulation mm-hmm. Magazine here at Cato. He's Very smart guy. Extremely smart, a heterodox thinker. He doesn't really get down into the philosophical weeds like uh, many other folks here. He's definitely an empiricist. Uh, but the way he arrives at conclusions is always rooted in that empirical analysis. And he arrives at often uh, libertarian conclusions by using um, just the data, whereas sure. other people would say, well, this is a principle at work here. Peter's the guy who says, oh, also, it doesn't work. Right. And, yeah, and, and he he takes him. Sometimes it takes him a while to, to make to actually fully flesh out an argument because his arguments are often very complicated. But he's able to explain it very well. He eventually he'll, he'll get to that that point, and you. I always feel like I've really learned something every time I talk to him. Yes, I think you're not the only one who's had that sure. experience. And Peter is. There aren't too many people who can deal with their confirmation bias as effectively as, as Peter can. And what I also feel, it, it is satisfying that he often, you know, does, doesn't get there necessarily ideological by being an, an ideologue, but he often arrives at the same conclusion that a libertarian ideologue would. Um, and I guess as a libertarian ideologue, that's comforting to me. <laughs> um, There's your bias again. Yes. He's also... Uh, and a fellow MIT alum, and last week I was telling someone that I wouldn't have a chance to get into MIT today, and uh, they were ascribing that to false modesty. And I said, no, no, I mean, I mean it. There's, I'm sure I got in by the skin of my teeth. There's no way I'd get in today. And they said, yeah, Peter Van Doren says that too. And I think that's another thing that separates Peter and myself, because <laughs> I'm confident that I would not get in today, but that Peter would. Um, so an, an interesting, uh, great, you know, great guy and great asset to the Institute. And in terms of difficult people to work with, because I know that's one of the questions you wanted to ask, I, I'd rather not. I figured, I, I figured I wanted, that. I want to talk to them again. We'll do that, <laughs> we'll do that off the air. Well, it'll be interesting, not just the other people who are challenging just because um, their, their policy area is or their work is uh, complicated. That's right. And uh, does, does you know, following it become a little bit of a challenge? Or maybe not following it, but getting it down to... Uh, being worthy material for a podcast because someone who's driving their car listening to podcasts can it get down to a to a level that they can understand right, that's it. right you uh we mentioned before you're uh you're pa- passionate libertarian and very knowledgeable very informed what policy areas 
most interest you or are you uh, most passionate about? Um, for a couple of reasons, issues surrounding speech, I think, are the most uh, interesting and important, mm-hmm. uh, not just from the on-campus, the campus stuff where it's just become a seemingly more difficult to speak out. I haven't visited a college campus in a while, but uh, the stories I hear about the the difficulties that yes, people absolutely. have of speaking and then covering even events that are as journalists covering events that take place on campus is, uh, seems to be becoming more difficult. And a lot of administrators are easily cowed by various interest groups that are trying to shut down debate or discussion. So I talk to uh, Greg Lukianoff of FIRE sure. uh, regularly. I talk a lot to folks from the Center for Competitive Politics on the campaign finance issues. And part of the reason I care about campaign finance issues so much is that if the, the, the aggrieved folks who complain about money in politics, I think if they actually understood the policy prescriptions of the people who are trying to uh, regulate speech or give Congress the explicit authority to regulate uh, speech, especially core political speech, and communication, that they would be diametrically opposed to the views that they they hold right now. But right now, the debate surrounds, well, is it a corporation making that speech or is it a person? And why is that an important distinction? And uh, my argument is, look, the speech is what's protected. The the source of that speech and the the ideological uh, backing that speakers have, we should uh, not worry so much about. Mm-hmm. Plus, uh, there's been a complete misunderstanding of what's meant by corporations. I mean, it's, there's, there's no phenomena where for-profit corporations are dumping, you know, millions of dollars into campaigns. If they were, I wouldn't particularly have a problem with that. But, you know, the Citizens United was a corporation, but it was really, you know, an advocacy group. Yeah, right, it that it made a movie. Right. That was critical of Hillary Clinton. Yes. And I think that a lot of people who, uh, who uh, are critical of Citizens United and SpeechNow.org, um, those two cases, should read the oral argument from right. Citizens yeah. United because it's pretty chilling. Yeah, we made a short video about that, and uh, the oral argument figured prominently in, in the video that we made. And... Chief Justice Roberts asked the government's attorney, it's a 500-page book, and at the end it says, so, vote for X, and asked the government, so do you think you could regulate that? And the regulation that they were talking about was essentially prohibiting the sale of those materials, I believe, 30 days before a primary, 60 days before a general election. Mm -hmm. And the government's attorney, to his credit, said, yeah, we could... We could regulate that. Right. And I think that so many of the people who rail against Citizens United would be appalled and frightened by, uh, by that. Yeah, the point that I like to make is the, the, the biggest problem I have with Citizens United is that it was not about a film by Michael Moore. Right, right. Because I think that, uh, frankly, I think that would have changed that one fact would have changed the debate pretty dramatically about yeah. the right of, of people using a corporation as a corporate form to produce films and talk about controversial topics and say things that people don't want to hear. 
Caleb Brown is the Director of Multimedia at the Cato Institute. This week marks 10 years of the Cato Daily Podcast. Subscribe to and share this podcast at our website, cato.org slash podcast.